0: Good morning Sabine Creek. Morning. Welcome to the newly renovated youth facility here. If you're new with us, uh, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at Sabine Creek and we are in the midst of a series called Cultivate in which we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit and how those get produced in our lives. Uh, we've said that it's, the, the very, it's a very different thing um, having some external put pr- externally put pressure on us to conform us into a particular way of thinking or way of acting versus having something internally change within us and begin to now to overflow onto the outside. It's kind of like if you were to take a piece of dough that you were going to bake a, a, a loaf of bread with and you were to pound that piece of dough out on the counter uh, and then you were to take a straw and you were to try and make it rise, right? You're going to take the straw, you're going to put it in there, and you're going to blow as hard as you can with as much effort as you can force in order to make that dough rise up and it's not going to do what you want it to do but if you take a little bit of yeast and you put it into the dough and you work it through the dough and as it works through the dough over the course of time it causes that dough to rise and change shape to what it is that you would like for it to be. And the same is true in our lives, right? We can take as much external force and external pressure and we can work as hard as we possibly can in order to try and create and generate the kind of change that we want to see in our lives. But unless there's something that changes internally within us, unless there's a new, new power and a new person who is introduced into our lives, into our hearts, that kind of external change doesn't take place. And the Bible is very clear in Galatians 5.22 that the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, it's the Spirit who gets introduced in here. The person of the Spirit moves in, and when he moves in, he begins to unpack all of his bags, and things begin to change in our lives from the inside out, not from the outside in. And one of the things that, the, that the, Paul says in Galatians 5.22 begins to change is the fact that we develop, we develop the fruit of the Spirit of peace. That's where we find ourselves this morning, in that train of fruit that get developed in our lives as the Spirit moves in. It's in this this fruit of peace is where we're going to be drilling down this morning. And our text for that is in Philippians chapter 4. It's perhaps um, one of the most famous texts on peace in all the Bible, but Philippians chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 4 and read down through verse 9. So if you have a copy of the text, go ahead and turn there. If not, it'll be on the screen. You can follow it along uh, as we read together this morning. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, and we'll read down through verse 9 together. Paul writes these words to the church at Philippi in Philippians 4.4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, this morning, as we try and get our minds around this kind of peace that the Spirit produces in our lives whenever He moves in, I want us to first of all get an idea of what peace is, this kind of peace is, then how it's cultivated in our lives and what the opposite of that kind of peace is. So what is the peace? What's the opposite of it? And how is it cultivated in our lives as the Spirit does His work in us? All right? So first things first, what is this peace this peace, biblically, if you, if you search throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, in fact, the New Testament builds off of the Old Testament concept of it, but this peace is this. Peace is an inner calm and wholeness of life. It's an inner calm and wholeness of life. When you think about peace being an inner calm, particularly this particular peace that Paul's talking about in Galatians 5 and Philippians 4, he's talking about this inner calmness or this inner tranquility that no matter how hard the winds blowing around us the waves the 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 water remains calm in our soul I don't know if you've ever driven over uh, I-30 on a very windy day across that bridge. When you drive across that bridge, right, and, you, and you're just kind of moving back into Rockwall or you're heading down into Dallas, and you see on a very windy day when the wind's blowing 25, 30, 35 miles an hour constantly out there on the lake. If it's coming out of the south, you look on the south end of the lake, and it looks like an ocean out there. There are white caps that are roaring and breaking, and as they come up against the rocks there along the I-30 bridge, they crash into those rocks over and over and over and over again. But if you look on the north side of the bridge, you look on the north side of the bridge and what you see there is that barely a ripple on the water. Because there's a windbreak that stops the wind and keeps it from causing all of the chaos on the other side of the bridge and that peace that Paul's describing here is a functions a lot like a windbreak in our lives. Notice what Paul says. If you go even further down in the text that we read this morning, he talks about how he's learned the secret of being content in all kinds of circumstances. Whether he's hungry, whether he's been beaten, whether he's been shipwrecked, no matter what he's experienced, he's got this contentment or this peace that settles in his heart. It's a windbreak, and no matter what circumstances and how hard the winds are blowing around him, the waters of his soul are still calm and placid no matter how rough they are outside. And the winds can blow for a variety of reasons in our lives, can't they? The winds can blow because we might lose someone that we love, whether through death or divorce. The winds can blow because we might lose a job. The winds can blow because we might not have reached a particular um, point in our career that we thought we should have reached by now, right? We see all of our friends succeeding. We see all of our friends excelling. And we're still kind of here. And they're here. We go, the, why Why am I still here when they're here? Okay, the winds can blow for all kinds of reasons in our lives. But the Bible says whenever the winds blow, those who have this fruit of peace that's being born in their lives, it functions as a windbreak. And no matter how heavy and high the waves are around them, the waters of their soul are still still and calm. And they're at rest. That's what Paul's describing here in Philippians chapter 4. That kind of peace that kind of an inner calm, that kind of an inner tranquility. But he's also talking about a wholeness. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, it speaks of this kind of a wholeness of life, this kind of a completeness of life. In fact, that's what generates that kind of calm is because when you look around you at everything that you might think that you need or that you're clamoring for, you realize you have everything that you could possibly want because internally there's a completeness and a wholeness about you based on who God is and what he's done not on who you are and what you're able to accomplish. So there's a wholeness here. You're not lacking anything. You're not divided in any directions. There's a wholeness and completeness that creates this calm and tranquility in the soul. And that's what Paul's talking about. No matter what circumstances are raging around us, he says there's a peace that passes all understanding. There's a peace, he says, as well, that guards your heart and mind. It has a protecting presence in your life. In fact, that word guard there literally was used to describe in the ancient world to describe an army that would encircle a city in order to protect that city from any invading troops. So they would encircle the city around the walls and they would stand on guard to protect from any infiltration, to protect from any invading presence. And Paul says that's what peace does for you. It's a peace that guards your heart. It guards what you're thinking. It guards what you're feeling. It guards you. That inner calm, that wholeness that about you because of what the Spirit's doing as He unpacks His bags. It guard it has a protecting presence. And You go, so what? Let me tell you the so what. All right, That protecting presence and that inner calm that you experience whenever you come to faith in Christ and the Spirit begins to do His work in your life, it gives you an incredible amount of clarity. No matter how confusing everything, the world is around you. It gives you an incredible amount of clarity. I've been out on the water on many occasions. I told you last week in that old beat-up boat that I have, and um, particularly in the spring months whenever I'm doing a little sight fishing. You know what sight fishing is? Some of you know what sight fishing is. We're actually roaming the shallows of the lake, and you're looking for the beds where the fish are setting up camp in order to drop their eggs. And you can see the big fish sitting on those beds. And as you roam the shallows of the lake... Right there, If the wind is pounding hard against the banks, it creates all this mud and churns up all this debris so you can't see anything underneath the water. But whenever you find an area of the lake where there's a windbreak, where there's a windbreak, there's a clarity there that you can see now underneath the water and you can see the beds and you can even see the fish. You can toss your Bait at them a few times. Sometimes they bite. Sometimes you gotta work on them for about an hour before they'll actually turn and get mad enough to hit the lure and you can catch them. But that's, that's, that's what happens with peace in our lives. It creates a clarity. No matter how confusing and how cloudy things may be around us, internally there's a clarity. There's a clarity for us as we process decisions in life, as we determine choices in life, as we consider opportunities and options that are presented to us. There's a certain clarity about our decision-making. There's a certain clarity about our, uh, the opportunities and options that are put before us. If there's this peace, if there's this windbreak, it keeps the mud from turning up in our souls. So we may still be uncertain about what the decision is, but we have a certain calm Knowing that it's going to be okay. There's a certain peace there. In fact, that's how we use the word most often, isn't it? We're trying to get a peace about a decision that we're making. Trying to get a peace about an option that's been presented. A peace about a choice that we have. And no matter how cloudy all the factors are that go into that decision, there's a certain calmness and clarity in the soul. That's what Paul's describing here. There's a wholeness, there's a calm, there's a clarity that protects you and guards you and keeps you. And in fact, that inner calmness, that inner peace, it actually has outward effects on our lives. It has outward effects in our lives. This inner calmness creates what we might say is an outer stability in our relationships, in the way that we interact with people. Have you ever known someone who's not at peace in here, who doesn't have that sense of tranquility and calmness in here? What happens typically is in the context of their family relationships, what happens in the context of their church relationships, happens in the context of their workplace relationships, what happens in the context of their neighborhood relationships, is they become the source and center of all kinds of drama, right? Drama just follows them around, Wherever they go in all these contexts, why? Externally, there's a lack of stability in their life because internally, there's a lack of tranquility and calmness in their soul. They keep reaching and reaching and reaching and become the source of all kinds of contention and all kinds of drama. I've seen it happen in churches. I've seen it happen in families. I've seen it happen in neighborhoods. I've seen it happen in office spaces. And all this drama ultimately erupts because there's not a contentment, there's not a peace, there's not a tranquility or calmness or wholeness about the person deep down in their soul. In other words, down in their soul, the waves are crashing against one another. The water's not calm in their soul. And so they become a source of drama. What Paul's describing here in this peace that the Spirit produces in our lives is an inner calmness and a wholeness that keeps everything in here calm and tranquil no matter how crazy everything gets out here. You see, the opposite of this particular peace that Paul's describing here is this. The opposite of this peace is anxiety. Is anxiety. You notice in the text in verse 6, where Paul says, be anxious, do not be anxious about anything, right? But in everything, through prayer and petition, present your requests to God, and the peace of God that transcends all understanding, passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul sets up a contrast between peace and anxiety, And I think he does so for a very particular reason, because this kind of anxiety that Paul's talking about in the text here, literally the root of that word means this, to be split into pieces, to be torn into pieces. The Greek word that that is underneath our English word anxiety, it means that you get torn into pieces. So Paul says the opposite of peace, the opposite of tranquility, the opposite of that inner calm, is to feel like internally you're being ripped to shreds, and you're being pulled in all kinds of different directions, And Paul says there's an inner wholeness called peace and there's an inner disturbance that feels like it's pulling you and ripping you apart at the seams called anxiety. And he sets those up at odds against each other. He says there's a peace and there's anxiety. They stand in contrast to each other. So you can either be whole in here and calm in here and tranquil in here or you can have the waves crashing against each other and feeling like you're being pulled apart. Kind of like you're in in, in an ancient torture chamber. And they've got one arm strapped here and one arm strapped here and one leg strapped here and one leg strapped here. And they're just pulling you apart at the seams, which creates that kind of anxiety. You ever been there before? (laughs) I know I have. I know I have. In 2011, in April of 2011, our daughter was born. And hours, literally hours after she was born, we had specialists in the room who were examining her head and determining, trying to determine what was going on with her skull because it, didn't, it wasn't shaped the way that it should have been shaped. And so they had x-rays and MRIs and CAT scans and appointments with neurosurgeons and appointments with plastic surgeons and appointments with maxillofacial surgeons and all kinds of surgical teams. We went from surgeon to surgeon to surgeon and x-ray to CAT scan to MRI all examining her head because she was born with a particular birth defect that caused two of her cranial plates to be prematurely fused together. So her brain couldn't grow as it was supposed to grow. And I can remember receiving that diagnosis. And I can remember meeting with surgeon after surgeon after surgeon. And I can remember leading up to the time of her first surgery where they were going to open up her skull. And they were going to take out bones. And they were going to reshape her head and then screw it all back together with deck screws, okay? That's what they were... And and a nail gun. They were going to put it all back together like we used this week. All back together in there. And I can remember leading up to that surgery trying to be kind of stoic about it. And I I honestly, I stuffed my emotions considerably. My wife can testify uh, to that experience. And I can remember at the moment that I handed my daughter over to the anesthesiologist who was gonna take her into the operating room in order to open up her head and reshape her skull. And I remember leaving Leaving the surgery waiting area and walking into the bathroom. And as soon as the door shut behind me, I bawled like a baby. I wept. I I didn't just kind of wipe away one tear from my cheek. I was weeping. I was weeping. Why? Because I felt that in my soul. I felt like I was being pulled. I felt like there was something that was tearing me to pieces. It's called anxiety. Some of you have been there. And it's the opposite to this inner calm. It's the opposite to this inner peace, this inner tranquility. Now, if you're comparing these two experiences this morning, where you probably find yourself and where I find myself is saying, sign me up for the former, okay? I want that kind of peace. I want that kind of tranquility in my life. That no matter how high the waves rise around me, there's still a calmness in my soul. So how does that get cultivated in a life? As so we want to spend the rest of our time this morning. How does that kind of peace get pressed into the soul? How is it produced in here as the Spirit does His work? I want to share with you three things, three ways this peace gets cultivated. As the Spirit does His work in our lives. And they are this. The Spirit uh, this is cultivated as, by thinking, praying, and resting. This kind of peace is produced in our lives by thinking and praying and resting. And I want you to see what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. Down in verse 8. Paul says that essentially peace is cultivated as you think as you think out your beliefs. Look what Paul says. He says, he, he, he challenges the uh, Christians at Philippi. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received from me and what you've seen in me, he says, put these things into practice. As you're thinking about them, put them into practice. And he says, and the God of peace, the God who provides this kind of peace, the God who produces this kind of peace will be with you. He'll be with you. Paul says one of the ways that this peace gets cultivated in our lives is when we begin to think out the implications of what we say we believe. That word, take take for instance the very first word Paul says there, finally brothers, whatever is true. When that word true shows up in the rest of Paul's letters, it most often refers to doctrinal truths that he is communicating to the churches that he's writing to. Just think about these things that are true about who God is and about who you are and about what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. He says this peace gets cultivated in your lives not whenever you turn your mind off but whenever you turn it on. See there's a difference between having an ignorant peace and having an informed peace and most of us Including myself at times, pursue peace down the ignorant road, down the ignorant path. We want to shut our minds off. Okay? We want to be like Zach Brown and his song Toes, right? We want to go put our posterior side of our body on a beach somewhere, sitting in the sand with our toes dangling in the water, with a cool drink in our hands, right? And every life is good at that point. And we kind of ignorant, we want to forget about all of life's cares. We want to forget about all of the, the difficulties and challenges that we're facing. We want to shut all that off and shut all that out and not think negative thoughts anymore. Now, that might buy you peace for a season, for a moment, but I can, challenge, I can tell you this, I can guarantee you this, it's not going to buy you peace for a lifetime. If you pursue peace down the ignorant path of not thinking through what you're facing and turning those thoughts off and setting those things aside, you know what happens whenever you come back from that vacation? They're there waiting for you aren't they? When you come back from the beach, when you come back from the lake, whenever you come back from the mountains, those same challenges, those same difficulties are waiting for you as soon as you walk through the door, as soon as you pull into the driveway. That's one path of trying to pursue peace, ignorantly. But Paul says, don't pursue it ignorantly. Pursue it with an informed mind. Don't turn your mind off. Turn it on. And think through the implications of what you believe about who God is, about who you are, about what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. For instance, let me show you how this works a little bit. Even if you just took the big main storyline of the Bible, and you looked at creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, and you looked at the big story, the big the big theologians call it the meta-narrative, the big story of the Bible. You see, in the very beginning, where did we all come from? Did we just happen to show up here one day the Bible testifies to the fact that God created us. He formed and fashioned us with care and concern. He created us, so we're not here by chance. So, what that means is that the things that unfold in our lives don't happen by quote unquote fate or they don't happen by quote unquote chance. They don't just kind of happen to us. That there is someone who has formed and fashioned and created us, and He has a plan and purpose for our lives that He's unfolding. See, even if you just think about all the things that you're facing on a daily basis and know that God created everything and he's in control of everything that he created. And you meditate on that and you think on that and you process that, it begins to produce peace. The spirit begins to work to produce peace in your life as you think about that big idea that God created and he's in control. You think about the fact that there was a fall and sin enters into the world. And so you know what you do? You set up expectations, and you say, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners. And as a result of that, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to sin against you, and you're going to sin against me. And I may be saddened by that, but I shouldn't be shocked by it. I shouldn't be shocked by it. Why? Because we live in a fallen world with other fallen human beings, and I'm a fallen human being. And what happens is whenever we are sinned against or whenever we sin against someone, we go, how could I ever be capable of that? And it begins to rob us of peace. Or somebody sins against us and we go, how could they ever be capable of that? And it begins to rob us of that sense of inner calm and the waves start crashing against each other. But if you set up an expectation and say, this is a fallen world and I live with other fallen creatures. Then I might be saddened by it, but I'm not shocked by it. It doesn't rob me of that sense of inner calm. When you look at the fact that God loved us enough to redeem us, even in our fallen state, to know that He he wanted relationship with us enough that He would send His Son to live in our place and die in our place. So you gotta think through the implications of this, and that one day He's coming back. So God's not gonna leave me to kind of drift, He didn't rescue me to abandon me, He rescued me. To save me forever. And one day when he returns, everything, all the waves that are crashing around me and all the wind that's howling in my life, all of that's going to be set right one day. And I'm waiting for that day. And I'm praying for that day. And I'm hoping for that day. And I'm longing for that day. And if you think through the implications of just those big four major ideas that the Bible communicates, it begins to produce peace in your life as the Spirit does his work. You don't shut your mind off to have this kind of peace. you got to turn it on. Second thing, not only, pr- not only thinking, but praying, Paul says. You got to pray. And how should you pray, Paul says? You got to pray with thanksgiving, with gratitude in your hearts. Now, notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, you present your request to God, and then when he answers, you thank him for whatever he provides for you that you ask for. That's not what Paul says, is it? Rather, what Paul says is, as you present the request to God, you do so from a heart of gratitude and a heart of thanksgiving, even as you're making the request, even as you're asking, you're thanking God for whatever his response is going to be. Now, how can you do that, right? How can I thank God for something that he has not yet done? The only way you can thank God for something that he has not yet done is if you understand the relationship between God's sovereignty and your prayer. God's omniscience, that he knows everything and what you're asking for, right? Because if you if you knew, whenever you, whenever you get on your knees before God and you ask God for something, you ask God for a spouse or you ask God for a child or you ask God uh, for a job or you ask God for um, whatever it is that is, is on your heart that you're searching for and desirous of, you ask God for these things, what you have to understand is this is that God gives you whatever you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. If you knew everything that God knows, you would have asked for X or you would have asked for Y. And maybe you did ask for X or Y and maybe God does give that to you. But if you, if you ask for A and God says, no, 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 you need X, you need X. See, if you knew everything that God knows, you would have asked for X. I experienced this in my own life several years ago before my wife and I moved here to go to seminary. Uh, we were serving as a youth, pa- youth pastor at a, um, a Southern Baptist Church, First Baptist Church, Pineville, Louisiana. Right? And that's where we were and that's where we thought we'd be for a long, long, long time serving as an interim student minister there. And they were looking for a full-time student minister. I submitted my resume in that process. And so they, they were going through the interview process and narrowed it down to me and one other person. And I was thinking, I'm already here. How hard can that be, right? So that's what I'm thinking. And I'm diligently praying, God, would you open this opportunity? Would you open this door? Would you open this door? Would you open this door? And then one day... Right before our youth evangelism conference, and I was about to take all of our students over to this conference, our, a pastor pulls me aside after service. He says, hey, can my wife and I take you and your wife out to lunch? I said, sure. And so we go out to lunch, and he sits down across the table from me. And we, we, he, he had kind of a mentoring, mentee-type relationship with me. And through tears in his eyes, he said, the personnel committees decided to go a different direction. So they chose the other guy right i've been praying faithfully and fervently and hoping that god would open up this opportunity for us to stay there and serve there for a long long time but you know what i didn't know everything that god knew i didn't know everything that god knows and god knew exactly where i needed to be and where i needed to go he knew if i stayed there i probably never would have pursued a seminary education i would have just continued to serve there and he knew that whatever he had in store for me, that it would be a good idea for me. to have a seminary education. So he moved me on to come here to go to school. And after being at school here it, it, for eight, eight years, okay, I squeezed, I squeezed a four-year degree into eight. I have, I'm good that way, right? <laughs> squeezed a four-year degree into eight after being here for eight years. I finished my seminary education. I started looking for opportunities. Started networking and pursuing opportunities to serve in a, in a lead pastor type of capacity. Started sending out resumes. Making phone calls. Nothing was happening. Nothing was happening. I'm praying and asking and praying and asking. That was in 2010, 2011. My daughter was born. And everything shut down for us. I quit networking. I quit pursuing. I quit pursue, uh, l- looking for opportunities. Knew God was planting us here, at least for this season to care for her needs with the doctors here in Dallas and then back in March I had three people in four weeks tell me hey they're looking to bring somebody else into Sabine Creek they're looking to bring somebody else into Sabine Creek they're looking to bring somebody else in, to Sabine, Creek. To bring somebody else in to Sabine Creek and so after the third person in four weeks told me that I thought maybe I should contact them <laughs> and so I did and the rest is history If I knew everything that God knew the moment I got down on my knees to pray, I would have asked for this. I didn't know that, though. And neither do you. See, Paul says you pray with with thanksgiving. Not once you receive it, but as you submit it. You pray with thanksgiving because you know that whatever God does is going to be for your best. It's going to be for your good. And if you will trust in that, you will trust in that the spirit begins to produce peace as you think out the implications of what you believe and as you trust that God knows more than you do when you pray finally finally notice what else Paul says here he says peace is cultivated in your lives not only by your praying and not only by your thinking See, there are some who think that it's all dependent upon me and what I'm able to do and what, I can, what I'm able to accomplish. Um, uh, Horatius Bonar, who was a, a, a Scottish pastor and poet in the 8th, 19th century, he said these words. He said, take comfort from our good doings or to take comfort from our good doings or good feelings or good plans or good prayers or good experiences. is to delude ourselves and to say peace when there is no peace no man can quench his thirst with sand or water from the Dead Sea, so no man can find rest from his own character, however good, no matter how good you are, he said you can't find rest in that, or from his own acts, however religious. In other words, you can't generate this peace on your own by being good or by doing good things. He says you can't do it by yourself. The truth is Paul says the same thing. When he says, at the end of verse 7 when he says that this peace that transcends all understanding it will guard your hearts and minds where not in some vague general abstraction of God but in Christ Jesus in Christ Jesus see what you and I have to do is not only Turn our minds on and think through the implications of our beliefs. And pray with gratitude and thanksgiving as we submit the request. But finally, you and I have to rest in the peace that's been provided for us. You know, God's provided peace for you. He's provided peace for you. And how has he provided peace for you? The Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse verse 20, he says this. Or back up in verse 19, he says, For in him, speaking of Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. The Bible says God has reconciled us to himself, and the way that he's done that is he's made peace between him and us through the cross. There's no longer hostility there. There's no longer enmity there between us and God. There is now peace. There's now peace for all those who look to Jesus and trust in Jesus and rest in Jesus' finished work. Not trying to generate peace for themselves, but resting in the peace that was purchased for them. D.L. Moody, a great preacher as well, in centuries past, said it this way. He said, a great many people are trying to make peace, but that has already been done. God has not left it for us to do. All that we have to do is enter into it. Do you want this kind of peace? Paul says, it's in Christ Jesus. Looking to him with eyes of faith, not trying to generate it on our own, but seeing, seeing what God has done in Christ. He says, as you look to that, as you reflect on that, as you rest in that, it produces this peace that you can't explain. It passes all understanding. It's hard to wrap your mind around it. Don't always get it cognitively and intellectually. But it's there if you would look to Christ. If you would look to him. I'll close with this. Horatio Spafford was an American lawyer in the 1800s. And he lost everything that he owned. Every last possession he had in the great fire of Chicago in 1871. Burned his whole home, home to the ground. Every possession that he had was lost. Two years later... His wife and four daughters, he put them on a boat and he sent them across the, the, the ocean to toward England. Well, that boat went down, it sunk. And when it sunk, all four of his daughters drowned. And his wife was found alive but unconscious. And whenever she finally made it to England, when she was rescued and made it to England, she got to England. And she sent a telegram back to Horatio and she, and she said this, two words, saved alone saved alone can you imagine the state of this man's soul having two years prior lost every earthly possession he had now lost all four of his daughters and his wife is in a foreign country grieving and mourning all alone so he gets on a boat to sail across the ocean to go pick up his wife and meet her and console her and comfort her and on the way he pens a great hymn you've probably sung before in church the title of that hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Listen to some of the lyrics that he writes. He says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, lest this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. He's just lost every earthly possession, his daughters, and he's now going to meet his wife. And what he's thinking about that's bringing him peace is what God has done to reconcile him to himself. And he says, there's nothing you can strip away from me in this life that can change that. And if that gets pushed into the center of your life, there is a tranquility and because G- Jesus now is your windbreak. He is your windbreak who gives you clarity, who gives you calmness. Do you look to the one who lost all his peace as he was literally torn into pieces for you? And that that then gives the spirit some fodder and fuel to begin to produce this peace in our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, we come today, thanking you for the cross, thanking you for the reconcil- reconciling work of Christ in our lives, thanking you for who He is and what he's done. And Father, may we rest in that. I pray. Father, for myself, for my family, for our church family, that we would rest in that. wholly secure, in the finished work of Christ. And because we rest in that, that we would pray with thanksgiving, knowing that whatever it is that you give is gonna be what's best. And may we, as we rest in that, maybe we think out the implications of what we believe so that we would have an informed peace and not an ignorant one one that lasts and endures and not one that can be stripped away at a moment's notice. Father, would your spirit, pray that your spirit would do this work in our hearts even as we sing together this morning. That you help us see Jesus as the windbreak for our souls that would create a wholeness in him and a calm no matter how high The waves are strong, the winds. Pray in Christ's name.